Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. This is a reading from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not honor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Will you pray with me? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for gathering us together this morning to hear your word. Lord, that we would be challenged, uh, that we would grow Uh, Lord, that we would fully understand and internalize what it means to love you um, and to be your hands and feet. Pray that you'll bless this time together with John as he shares his, um, what what you have put on his heart from 1 Corinthians. Pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hello. My name is John without an H. Uh, just like John Odom, and it really is an honor to be here. Um, there's a number of friendly faces um, in this community, and um, when I think of this place, we, my uh, family and I, we've just moved to, to Bartlesville, but this place has been a place that's been in our heart for years. Um, and the communities that I come from, um, over the last few years, I had a number of conversations with uh, lovely people who were longing to belong to a community like this, and they just could not find exactly the right place. And so years ago, I would have uh, conversations with some people that I love dearly, and they probably think a little too much of me, and I, I would say, I know a guy. His name's John. It's not me. Hold on. And so, um, not to have a mutual admiration society here, but um, it's just so neat to see uh, what began years ago take this shape and some of these people that I love so much now belonging uh, to this community. Uh, We are, Savannah and I are quite jealous that we can't be a part of it uh, because we're up the road, but it's so nice to to cheer you on uh, from afar. 
If you've ever read Malcolm Gladwell, he is a really interesting sort of pop sociologist, psychologist. In, in a book called Outliers, he makes an argument why you would not want to fly Korean Airlines in the late 90s. He makes the observation that in the late 90s there were 12 incidents of aircraft disasters, and his argument is that essentially it was a problem of culture. That Boeing and Airbus, who come from sort of Western thought, uh, Western cultural backgrounds, could not uh, interact well with Korean airline pilots who came from a different form, a different culture that deferred to uh, elders and things like that. So his argument was that essentially a number of aircrafts crashed because, in fact, Western approaches assumed that there would be equality between the pilot and co-pilot and navigator. And in these scenarios where massive disasters happened and huge losses of life, that in fact what was happening was a clash of culture. This is some, even though a number of um, sociologists have actually uh, question whether or not Gladwell's argument is in entirely accurate, it becomes a helpful picture into what goes on in Corinth. Um, as you know, the, the Pauline letters are laid out longest to shortest, and so the journey from Romans to 1 Corinthians is in fact not chronological. Paul writes Romans from a home in Corinth, the house of Gaius. It's from there that he sends Phoebe that you talked about um, last week. That return to Corinth and to Gaius' home represents a long journey through what scholars call the crisis in Corinth. The evolution of that crisis involved probably at least four letters and three visits to Corinth. The first of those letters is lost, and we find it in 1 Corinthians 5.9. The second letter that we know of is, in fact, 1 Corinthians. All of that to say is that we have to go back in time to a darker period in Paul's ministry where this crisis began. Scholars are quite certain that the crisis that happens in Corinth is not a crisis of theology, of right belief versus wrong belief, but it is a crisis that involves two different cultures, the culture of Roman Corinth and the culture of the crucified Messiah. So typical of Paul's habit of dropping sometimes practical, pragmatic commands at the close of a letter, Paul begins to end 1 Corinthians with a series of imperatives. I want us to look at two today. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul writes, Act like men. Be strong. This is a curious phrase and perhaps curious as to why somebody would want to come here and preach on it. And I want to say this. In light of being a largely unknown guest and in the current discourse in our society, I think it's best to avoid a mystery book approach and instead just simply show my hand. I'm not interested in making commentary on gender identity issues. I'm not talking today about gender dysphoria or related matters. I'm not interested in grinding an axe on current debates of masculinity. Instead, as an emerging young-ish scholar, I'm deeply interested in what these words meant in Corinth. And then, and only then, am I interested in thinking about what these words might still mean for men and women boys and girls who are learning to worship Jesus in Tulsa. All that to say I'm far more willing to bore you with my nerdiness than to poke you in the eye with some sort of hot take. So Paul, in part, ends 1 Corinthians with this imperative, become men, be strong. When we realize that Paul sends Phoebe from Corinth to Rome as a trusted envoy, it's enough to ask, what about the women? What about the children, for that matter? But more is going on here than meets the eye. Paul's mission 
is almost entirely an urban affair, an engagement with a culture that we know as Roman Hellenism. And as that culture was produced and reproduced for centuries, there emerged something of what we call a virtue economy. The four main virtues of the Greco-Roman world were prudence, which was known as phronesis, temperance, sophre sune, justice, dikaia sune, and courage, or manliness, Andrea. Manliness was a key pillar in ancient society, and so it's quite interesting that across the New Testament, writers never use this expression or any of its related terms. The one exception is 1 Corinthians 16, 13. And so while the complete absence of this manly virtue language suggests a completely different value system among early Christian communities, this morning we want to explore the significance of this one exception. Because masculinity was a cardinal virtue, referring to manliness is not simply to talk about men or to talk to men. Yes, it was a thoroughly patriarchal society. Yes, the Greco-Roman history is much like world history. It's the account of big men doing so-called big things. But to refer to this core virtue of Andrea, to command one to live up to this ideal, is to refer to an organizing principle of a community, a principle that relates to people, men, women, and children. So ancients would hear this exhortation to be a man and would draw to mind all sorts of assumptions and values and conventions. Unlike in our context when we discuss male, the male-female binary generally in reference to chromosomes, the historian Maud Gleason writes that in antiquity, masculinity had to be one. In general, this virtue was won through various forms of social combat. Masculinity was, held, was demonstrated by bold, assertive, and sometimes violent action. If you wanted the virtue, you needed to dunk on someone. John Linden writes, a man needed the power to hurt. Dunking on, hurting, they all communicate the essence of this virtue, total control. Control over a woman, control over slaves, control over enemies, control over children. The opposite of manliness or Andrea was passivity. It was gentleness. It was meekness. It was servility. And so the controlled became the concrete symbols of unmanliness. They became the anti-hero. Women, children, slaves, the disabled. Not because of issues related to reproductive organs, but because of the lack of of control. And so the arenas in which this virtue was won were always communal spaces. The home, the bedroom, the courtroom, the marketplace, the lecture hall, the brothel, the meal, the religious gathering. And since you or some of us have been reading 1 Corinthians this week, perhaps you're starting to put some things together. As a whole, 1 Corinthians is a careful response to multiple issues concerning these live wires in the community who seem committed to typical expressions of Andrea. And so I want to show you a little bit about that. You'll actually have to listen because we have some slide issues, but listening to the scriptures is the way it originally worked. In chapters 1 through 4, if we read between the lines, it's evident that some in the community wish to support a man named Apollos instead of Paul, particularly because of Apollos' what we call rhetorical 
delivery. In chapters 1 through 4, Paul frequently uses the word wise or wisdom. Paul states, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Verses 2, 4. Wisdom here refers not to the content of Paul's message, but its style. The force of his rhetoric. Apparently, Apollos had the goods. Luke describes him in Acts 18.24 as an eloquent man. And so it was Apollos' dominance over the spoken word that led a number to critique and actually part with Paul. After all, it's Apollos' return for which some in the community long, not Paul's. In chapters 5 through 6, it's about exercising dominance through sex and law. There's a certain man who flaunts his incestuous relationship in chapter 5. There's another group of people who claim everything is permissible or lawful as they go to the brothel. Then, as in now, it's the voice of the powerful man who knows that he can do what he wants and ultimately get away with it. Sandwiched between these two issues, Paul responds to men who are engaged in litigation. The courts in Roman Corinth were not a place for justice. It was a place for dunking. It was a place to dominate your rivals, often through the power of your spoken word. In both instances, we're not talking about love. We're not talking about justice. We're talking about victory. We're talking about conquest, which means, once again, we're talking about Andrea. In chapters 8 through 10, we hear the same voice that says, everything is permissible. I can do what I want, this time in regards to eating idol meat and participating in idolatrous gatherings, even though a number of believers who are known as the weak ones are troubled by this behavior. The notion is similar. I'm a male. I can do what I want. Invites to dinners and cultic gatherings were essential parts of socializing and local power politics in ancient Corinth. uh, Relatively powerful people needed to show up, and to miss this opportunity is to lose relevance. It's to risk losing social power. And so they say, everything is permissible for me. Beginning in 11.2 and through the remainder of the letter, the issues are not primarily about how the community in Corinth is bumping up against uh, external institutions like brothels and courts, but instead, in fact, how the community is taking on this larger uh, value of Andrea into the community. So in 11, 17 through 34, we're provided a window into the first, uh, our first window into the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Paul writes, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. Based on different possible meetings in Greek, one of two scenarios emerge. Either the haves, which is what Paul refers to them, are eating the feast before the have-nots arrive, or the haves are devouring the meal in front of the have-nots. Either way, the meals were key means of demonstrating rank, power, and status in Roman Corinth. The ancient sources tell us that the powerful received better food and more of it, while the poor would live in constant uh, calorie deficit. Finally, there's the issue of spiritual gifts in 12 through 14. And again, by reading between the lines, some in the community ranked their giftedness, primarily ecstatic speech, as a status indicator. Like rhetoric, sex, law, and meals, spirituality and the worship gathering became a contest, a wrestling match, a struggle to demonstrate who was on top. And to quote Paul, he believed that there were some in the community that could actually pronounce on their lessers, I have no need of you. 
And so to modify the teacher in Ecclesiastes, when we read 1 Corinthians, we can say, Andrea, Andrea, everything is Andrea. It makes it all the more suspicious that Paul ends this letter saying, become men, act like a man, be strong. What could he mean? In each of these scenes, which become a window into early Christian life, Paul challenges the typical expressions of Roman masculinity with the gospel of the crucified man. To those who find his speaking style unattractive, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, by not turning on the smoke machine, by not putting on the laser light show, people could believe because the words were true, not because of a pressured sales pitch. Paul continues contrasting himself with the community. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, we in disrepute. And, uh, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst, and we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And a few verses later, I urge you then, become imitators of me. The call to imitation is not a call to material poverty. Rather, Jesus Christ crucified is the opposite of the Roman definition of manliness. That's why the Romans divide, devised crucifixion. There Jesus hung, penetrated by nails, dishonored, passive, and humiliated. For Paul, worshiping this Messiah calls into question the whole honor system, the whole measure of manliness. And so his life is a protest against it, a rejection of the system that looked, as Jesus, looked, to Jesus, looked at Jesus as a failure. Paul's point is that the cross should trickle down into our very sense of style and value and meaning. To imitate Paul is to reject the measuring rod of manliness. With time and attention limitations in view, Paul responds to the issues of sexual conquest and predation, and he refers to it as a communal toxin, something to be removed, not something to celebrate. The muskiness of male conquest, Paul says, is actually a form of slavery while Christ's victory over death should elevate the human body rather than reduce it to mere urges and appetites. And surprisingly, women's bodies are not simply male property as they were believed all throughout uh, Roman Hellenism. Rather, there is to be a sense of mutuality and love. Paul writes, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. All the Roman men would say, Amen. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. No one had ever said that. While the notion of authority over a body might offend some of our modern sentiments, this statement of mutual commitment cuts off the ancient expectation that a true man can do as he pleases, pleases with whom he pleases. And in response to those who claim that they have the right to eat idol meat and attend cultic gatherings, no matter if the weak are troubled by it, Paul portrays himself as an example of someone who has a right himself, but he doesn't cash it in. He doesn't claim it. 
He writes, for though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in the blessings. Hardly the picture of the ideal Mediterranean man. Rather, Paul appears something of a chameleon, only to convert this picture into the ultimate man, the athlete who disciplines his body. And at the end of the unit, Paul says again, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul has a right, he has power, he could dunk, he could demonstrate control, but he rejects the path of Roman masculinity, becoming a slave in order that the gospel might embrace a wider audience. In response to the haves that are consuming the Lord's Supper while the have-nots go hungry, Paul points uh, to the command that the community would share the Lord's Supper with the have-nots in memory of the Messiah whose body was given for you. And in response to overvaluing speaking in tongues and reducing other members to second-class citizens, Paul presents the metaphor of the body, claiming each person plays a crucial role in acting out the drama of the gospel in Corinth. His great love poem that we began with, Love is patient, love is kind, is meant to reframe what actions and giftings ultimately matter. Love points us to actions that build up the community, invite others into the rich life God has for them, rather than putting on a show at everyone else's expense. And then the chapter we haven't talked about, chapter 15, Paul talks about resurrection. In a way, Paul frames his letter with the cross and resurrection, sorry challenging the live wires within the community to live within these realities. A number of excellent sermons have been preached on 1 Corinthians 15, not least in this community, actually some of my favorite by John. So just a few thoughts. Apparently, a number in the community viewed Jesus' resurrection as a one-off, a cool party trick that apparently granted a number of believers uh, what all ancients wanted from religion, power. Paul responds that Jesus' resurrection not, does not mean, or means that he has all the power and that he is going to bring an end to every rule. Sorry, every rule and every authority and power. This will result in the resurrection, uh, in the end of death itself, and the resurrection of the dead for his followers. Since death is the last enemy to be defeated, this means two things. One, Paul's audience needs to make a decisive break with the present and stop partnering with death. The deathliness of evaluating people based on how way they speak or how good they look or how much money they have. The deathliness of seeing sexual relationships and human relationships in general as an area to claim victory. The deathliness of turning every community into a wrestling mat where the strong survive and where might is right. And then second, in light of God's desire to undo death's grip on creation, Rather than grant superpowers to people to get a larger slice of the pie, Paul says to get to work. Particularly, he ends the letter by, uh, by inviting the community to participate in an international relief fund, where these people who had been basic, uh, pursuing the idea of claiming a space and dominating others can, in fact, serve starving believers in Jerusalem. And then the letter ends, which brings us back to where we begin Act. Like men, be strong. Now we see what Paul has been up to. Throughout the letter, he has been undermining the conventional meanings of the expressions and the values attached to them. And he has been repurposing them uh, in light 
of the cross and the values found there. Linguists refer to this as code switching. Being a man doesn't mean dunking on everyone you can. It means, in fact, entering a new mode of humanity. It means becoming like Jesus. And so a few thoughts as we close. First Corinthians challenges the notion of just disembodied belief. Instead of what James Smith, the philosopher, refers to as brains on stick, that is pe- brains on sticks, that is people who understand Christian faith as a purely spiritual, ethereal, emotional, and intellectual matter. First Corinthians reminds us that following Christ must be expressed and worked out in the same arenas as Andrea. The home, the bedroom, the workplace, the marketplace, the lecture hall, the meal, the worship gathering. The man on the cross who will one day transform our bodies in this world calls us towards a radical transformation of our social relationships. Relationships that should be characterized by cruciform, self-lowering love. Love in the shape of the cross. Second, by talking about this topic, I would assume that some still might suspect that there is an axe to be grind. However, I think that there is such a thing as healthy competition and boldness and risk-taking. In our home, we say this, be safe, but not too safe. In the communities where I work, I've often told students, this is a place for you to be safe, not to play it safe. Women and men, girls and boys need risk. We need to suffer for something we believe in. The question for us today is, can we live in this way without surrendering to Andrea? Can we be bold and daring while still full of cruciform love? I think we can, and it's for us to dream up how that will look. In short, while I don't think muscular Christianity is a true representation of a crucified Messiah, neither is bubble wrapping our world. But that last impulse, that last impulse that we see in our culture, where does it come from? I want to ask these questions. Why do we live in a society today that values the so-called weak? values the type of people that in Roman antiquity would not be. Yes, our society seems to be hopelessly polarized polarized as we move increasingly into a post-Christian moment, and we're often conscripted as as foot soldiers into that polarity. But why does our society value the victim? Why do we insist that slavery is wrong? Why do we demand that our world be fully accessible to the disabled and even make laws to make it so? Why is exposing our infants or sacrificing them horrifying, although we would put the uh, provision that every generation finds a way to sacrifice its youth uh, for convenience in one way or another? Why do we want people of every stripe to have access to safe drinking water or health care, even though we disagree on how best that could be realized? Why do we want people, uh, why do we simply accept uh, that our police force protects everyone, not just the wealthy? Why do women have their own doctors dedicated to their their health? And why, for that matter, do we accept that a woman or a person with a disability can become a doctor or anything they want? Why is poverty wrong? Why are these our society's values? The historian Tom Holland recounts that in studying the Caesars and Leonidas and other figures of the ancient world and their values, 
he realized that his teachers had lied to him. Our modern values do not come from Greece or from Rome. In those societies, if you were a victim, if you were disabled, if you were a slave, and if you were a woman and you wanted to speak up, you would be told, too bad, deal with it. Even as a non-believer, Tom Holland writes, in my morals and in my ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. This is what the philosopher Charles Taylor referred to as craters of the gospel. Like the pockmarked surface of the moon, our society today shows the impact craters of the gospel, even as we have lost the moorings from which our values emerge. Yes, we can ask some very serious questions like how, lo how much longer can this state of affairs last and how healthy is it to be unmoored from, in fact, these, uh, these values. But we live in the world that we do rather than a world inha inhabited by human T-Rexes because of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians and the ways in which it has made its way into the groundwater of our own culture. This is something to celebrate. Finally, as we believers feel our place in society slipping, perhaps we fear a loss of relevance just as those men who feared what would happen if they didn't show up to those idol feasts. Perhaps a sense of slippage tempts us to return to a form of Andrea, where we think we need to throw an elbow here or act like a strong man there. Perhaps 1 Corinthians challenges us to reject Andrea again and to continue to act out cruciform love in our relationships, in mission to our families, our city, and our society, filling up those craters with people like us who embrace the cross in the past, wait for the resurrection of the dead in the future, and thus work for healing in the present. Let's pray. God, we invite you, Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, to renew us in all the world. We pray that the very cross would not be something we look at as a one-off, as a victory, but in fact a whole way of life that radically transforms the relationships that we have with one another. We pray, God, that in the present moment that we find ourselves, that you would continue to work in us and through us to know how the cross can be true in our marriages, in our relationships with our children, with our coworkers, and in, out in the world. And as we find ourselves in a world that is filled with craters of the gospel, will you help us, God, to take our place in one of those craters and to proclaim the gospel and to live it out in vibrant ways that point people to you. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.